through 21. God's word. Do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. They may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kelly, and good morning, everyone. It's a real privilege to be in God's word with you this morning. Let's start by going to the Lord together in prayer and pray for our time together. Father, we need you this morning. It's, um, we come to you, Father, in prayer, urged by our need, invited by your promises, called by your spirit, and encouraged by your love. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Guide us by your spirit into all truth. Illuminate our minds, stir up our hearts, and teach us to obey. Fit us for heaven so that one day we will go running into the arms of Jesus as we enter his rest. Amen. So I've enjoyed reading recently some of the Puritans' prayers. Oh, how they prayed. Their unity for Christ, their passion for his glory, and their longing for the eternal really has affected me deeply. There's another prayer that's made an impression on me. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. About 20 years ago, I took a group of parents and teens to Guatemala to help with a church plant. We visited the home of a local believer. Each morning, the husband of this family would, would get up before dawn and go into the city to look for work as a day laborer. Each evening, he would bring home food for their one meal of the day. The husband and wife were caretakers of a vacant lot. They weren't paid, but they were allowed to live there rent-free. The lot had a cinder block wall around it, and in one corner, they had stacked more cinder blocks to form the four walls of their house. They nailed corrugated tin to the top for a roof. Their family of five lived in this tiny one-room house with a dirt floor. The day we visited, the husband was working, but we took some gifts of clothing and school supplies and toys for the children. Then we went outside the home, stood in a circle with the wife, and prayed. I will never forget her prayer. She was a poor woman with an eighth grade education, but her prayer showed us that we were the ones who were poor and needy. She prayed like the Puritans, 
She prayed for our unity in Christ. She had a passion for his glory and a longing for the eternal. Her prayer was not for herself, but for us. We visited to be a blessing to her, and she was the one that blessed us. This morning, we continue to examine Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. It is perhaps the greatest prayer ever recorded. Uh, we find it only in John's Gospel. Uh, it's the longest prayer Jesus prayed that's recorded in any of the Gospels. It comes at the end of his final instructions to his disciples, immediately for the Passion narrative. It gives us a picture of what is on his heart right before his imminent suffering. Two weeks ago, Pastor Scott covered verses 1 through 5, where principal themes include Jesus' glorification of the Father and the revelation of God in his Son. Last week, Pastor John covered verses 6 to 19, where we see Jesus revealing God's name, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, and Christ's intercession for them. Jesus petitions the Father for seven things concerning his disciples. In verse 11, he prays that they be kept or preserved. Father, keep them. Second, in verse 13, he prays that they may have his joy. In verse 15, that they be kept from the evil one. Fourth, in verse 17, that they be sanctified. Then, as we'll see today, he prays in verse 21 for our unity. In verse 24, that we be with him forever. Seventh, also in verse 24, that we see. refer to this prayer as Jesus' high priestly prayer, was David Chitreus, a German theologian who lived in the 1500s. The high priestly prayer is not a bad description, as Jesus certainly is our high priest, and he intercedes for his disciples, meaning he prays to God on our behalf, which is a priestly function. But it's not all intercession. He also prays for himself. So perhaps a better name for this prayer might be the Lord's Prayer. Now, what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer is really the model prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, say this. The model prayer includes asking for the forgiveness of sin, which, of course, isn't something the sinless Son of God would pray for himself. But it is very much part of the pattern of our prayers. Regardless of its label, the prayer in chapter 17 is typically outlined in this way. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. In verses 20 to 26, which is our text today, Jesus prays for future believers. He prays for his church through the centuries. He prays for us. Already he has set his affections on us. Already he has written our names in the Lamb's book of life. Christ's intercession for us began 2,000 years ago and continues to this day, 
since he always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Look at verse 20 with me. I do not ask for these only, he's talking about the disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Some will believe in Jesus by hearing the message from the 11 disciples, but through the centuries, many more will come to know Jesus through the apostles' word as recorded in scripture. Jesus is praying for those who will believe the apostles' word as a result of works. The apostles' message is the good news of Jesus Christ. To understand why it's good news, we have to understand our true condition. God is a holy God, and we are a sinful people. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The penalty for our sin is eternal separation from God. That's our true condition. The good news is that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so God calls all men and women everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. Through faith in Christ, God declares that his laws have been satisfied and our sins are forgiven. That is good news. In our text, there are three parts to Jesus' prayer. In verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays that we be united in him. In verse 24, Jesus prays that we be reunited with him. And in verses 25 and 26, Jesus promises to continue to make the Father known. First, Jesus prays that we be united in him. Verse 21 starts out, that they also may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here we see that Jesus links our unity to the unity that we have with the Father and the Son. Jesus prays that we be united in him because our unity is rooted in the Trinity. Back in chapter 15 of John, we saw something else that was rooted in the Trinity. We saw that our love for one another is part of a chain of love that has its source in the Trinity. The profound love that unites the Trinity to each other then unites God to the disciples and in turn unites the disciples to one another. Just as our love for one another is rooted in the Trinity, so also is our unity. The unity Jesus is praying for is the kind of unity that exists between the Father and the Son that he gives to us through the Holy Spirit. With the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, believers were sovereignly and supernaturally united as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that we're all members of the body of Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Consequently, there is a supernatural unity in the church through the Holy Spirit. We don't create this unity. 
but we do maintain it. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if our unity is rooted in the Godhead, what does the unity of the Trinity look like? And how does a unified church reflect the unity of the Godhead? The word Trinity itself means tri-unity or three-in-oneness. It's a word used to summarize the teaching of Scripture about God, specifically that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, some may ask, well, how can God be both one and three at the same time? Isn't that contradictory? Well, not if we're, they're referring to different things. To illustrate this, R.C. Sproul uses the example of Charles Dickens's famous line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. We understand this to mean that in one sense, it was the best of times. In another sense, it was the worst of times. So how is God one? He is one in essence. How is God three? He is three in person. Another aspect of the unity of the Trinity is that each person of the Godhead has different. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us the role of each person of the Godhead in our salvation. God the Father chose us, God the Son redeems us, and God the Holy Spirit seals us. The three persons of the Trinity work inseparably because their work is the work of one God. This brings us to our second question. How does a united church reflect the unity of the Trinity? So let's consider four ways. First, a united church is committed to our mission. In verse 21, Jesus refers to being sent by the Father. The role of the Son is different than the role of the Father, but they're united in their shared mission. In a similar way, the members of the local body have different gifts according to God's choosing. But each of us are to use our gifts, Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So as different members of the body of Christ, we have different gifts. Unity is not uniformity. But we're to all use our gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So are you, Christian, using your gifts for the edification of the body? Are you playing a role in making disciples of all nations? We all bring different things to the table, but we're united in our commitment to our shared mission. Second, a united church is committed to God's glory. In verse 1, Jesus prays for the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son. In verse 24, Jesus desires that we see his glory. Just as the Trinity is concerned about God's glory, so should be the church. 
God's glory should be the motivation of all that we do. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is God's glory the motivation for what you do? In the church, are you seeking God's glory or your own? Seeking our own glory brings disunity to the church, but a united church is committed to God's glory. Third, a united church is committed to the truth. In verse 20, Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the apostles' word. Some will believe by hearing the apostles' words spoken, spoken directly by the apostles during their lifetime. But again, most are going to hear the words passed on to them from Scripture. The truth of Scripture unifies the church. It's our authority. It's our ultimate standard of truth. Are you church in the word? Not just in corporate worship, but in daily meditation. Show me a church that is not committed to scripture, and I'll show you a church that is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. A church that's taken over by the weeds of gossip, selfishness, and conflict. But a church that is unified is a church that is committed to the truth of Scripture. Fourth and last, a united church is committed to love. There is a profound love within the Trinity. In verse 26, Jesus prays that this same love be in us. Paul tells the church in Colossae to bear with one another and forgive each other. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How are you committed to loving others in the church? Are you bearing with one another and forgiving each other? Love is the glue of unity. A united church is bound together in love. Next, in the second half of verse 21, Jesus prays for our unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that we be united in him because our unity is a witness to the world. Our unity is to be so captivating, so supernatural, that it can only be explained if Jesus was really sent by God the Father. What does this unity look like? For unity in the church to be a powerful testimony to the world, it must be compelling and it must be visible. First, our unity must be compelling. It must be real. It's the kind of unity that will convince people that the gospel is true. Too often, the world has seen believers with no real commitment to each other, where believers receive pain from a church and flee it immediately. Part of being in relationship with one another means that we will sometimes hurt one another. But when we forgive one another, when we bear with each other, when we show preference to one another. It's a picture of the love of Jesus. It's like there's a giant picture frame above the church that says, come and see what God is like. As I studied this passage, 
God convicted me of my own sin towards others in the church. By God's grace, I had conversations with them to seek their forgiveness. I would encourage each of you to do the same. Some would say that Christian unity means that we do away with core theological truth, that we should set, set aside important truth for the sake of unity. But Jesus isn't saying to find the lowest common theological denominator. Rather, Jesus is asking us to show a shattered, set-aside theology and expect to do that. Second, for unity in the church to be a powerful testimony to the world, it must be visible. The world has to see it. Our unity is not just relational. It's also missional. Said differently, our unity is one of relationship and it's one of mission. So I'd like to talk to the children here a minute because the words missional and relational are really big words. So let me explain what I'm talking about. How many of you children have brothers or sisters? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Does your mom or dad ever ask all of you to do something together like uh, all of you pick up your toys? Does that ever happen? Yeah, you hear that? Okay. Would your mom or dad be happy if only one of you picks up your toys and the other continued to play? No, no. Yeah, they, they want you to do it together, right? So even though the toys got put away, they didn't happen the way your mom or dad wanted it to happen. Disciples of all nations. He's concerned about the mission, but he's also concerned about our relationships with each other as we do the work together. When we work side by side for the sake of the gospel, it's a powerful, visible testimony to the world. When we partner with other like-minded churches for joint Thanksgiving services, or to do ESL together, or to help at House of Agape, or to connect with internationals, we are showing our unity to the world. Jesus links our unity to both our relationships and our mission. When you think about fulfilling the Great Commission, how often does unity in the local church come to mind? When we think about making disciples of all nations, do we think about the need to forgive that brother or sister that's in our local assembly? Jesus prays for our unity because our unity is a witness to the world. Next, we see another outcome of our unity. Jesus prays that we be united in him because in our unity we share in his glory. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is talking about giving believers through the centuries the glory given to him by God the Father. But how does this reconcile with Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, my glory I will not give to another? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to know what he means by glory. It's used in different ways in Scripture. One type is the glory that belongs to God alone throughout eternity. 
And that's the glory of Isaiah 48, 11. Jesus is not talking about giving his eternal glory to his disciples. It's not the glory that he had before the incarnation. That glory was veiled in his flesh. Verse 5 tells us that he had yet to reclaim that glory, the glory that he had before the world existed. Another type of glory that he's not talking about is our glorification, uh, where we receive our resurrected bodies. Our glorification has not yet been given. That's still future. In Philippians 3.21, the Apostle Paul says that in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul refers to our glorification as the last step in our redemption. In Romans 8.30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also to the glory that he had before the incarnation or to our future glorification. What is he referring to? Jesus is saying that he has shared his glory in the sense that he has revealed what the Father gave him to reveal. He has manifested the excellence of God's character throughout his life. He has accomplished his work of revealing the Father. He talked about this in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has shown his followers the glory of God. He showed it personally to his first followers, but he also shows it to us who believe on account of their word. Why does Jesus give us his glory? Verse 22 says that Jesus gives his glory that they may be one even as we are one. So let me ask you this, when is it easier to be unified as believers? When we're reflections of the world or when we reflect the glory of God? Of course, it's, it's the latter. The greater our focus on revealing God's glory through the gospel, the greater our unity and the greater our impact on the world. As an example of that, there are is the early church, and it says when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they had uh, when they did that, they had all things in common. There's their unity. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's their missional impact. So next, Jesus prays that we be united in him because in our unity we share in his love. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Like in verse 21, Jesus prays for our unity for the sake of our mission, so that the world may know that you sent me. Our unity gives authenticity to our gospel witness. Here he adds a further reason for our unity, that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. Because of our unity, the world will know that we are loved by the Father. The world will be confronted by our unity. There's no human explanation for it. We have nothing in common except for what really matters. 
As the world looks on, the only explanation for our unity is that we are truly loved by God. It's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. Notice that we're loved by the Father with the very same love he reserves for his Son. That's a breathtaking statement. It's extraordinary. The father-son relationship is bathed in a love that we can scarcely comprehend. How does God the Father love the Son? He loves the Son eternally. He loves him completely. He loves him with a perfect love. This is his beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased. This is the son to whom he grants glory. This is the son that he has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And to what degree are we loved? The father loves us as he loves the son. See what kind of love the father has given to us, 1 John 3, 1. Because of the great love with which he loved us, Ephesians 2, 4. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, Romans 8.39. What should be our response to such a great love? Scripture says that we are to love God, keep his commandments, and love one another. 15.12, by this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments, 1 John 5.2. Notice also that Jesus prays that we become perfectly one. The more our unity approaches perfection, the more compelling our proclamation of the gospel, and the more evident it is to the world that we are loved by God. That's why Jesus prays in verses 20 to 23 that we be united in him. Next, in verse 24, Jesus prays that we be reunited with him. Verse 24 starts out, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Does that not stagger the imagination? God the Father has given us to God the Son, and God the Son wants us to be with him in eternity future. It says he desires it. This echoes Jesus' earlier words. In John 14, he said that he was going to prepare a place for us. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. For what purpose? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that we be reunited with him because he wants us to see his glory. As we talked about in verse 22, the glory that he had already given his disciples was not his eternal glory. But now, in verse 24, he's saying that he wants us to see that glory. Christ was loved by the Father from eternity past. He wants us to see the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. He wants us to see him as he is. The word see here means to look intently, to gaze. Throughout scripture, we have glimpses of that glory. It's always way too brief. For example, Peter, James, and John were given a short look at the, that glory 
on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before him, them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. One day, we will all see his glory. John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall see his eternal glory as God. What will that look like? Well, in Revelation 5, we're given another glimpse. There will be thousands of thousands, meaning millions of angels around the throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever to this we say with john amen come lord jesus the older i get the more i long for heaven maybe that's why i resonate with the puritans prayers and why I will always remember the prayer of that woman in Guatemala who prayed for our unity in Christ, who had a passion for his glory and a longing for the eternal. Jesus prays that we be reunited with him because he wants us to see his glory. Finally, Jesus promises to continue to make, even though the world does not, please look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. What are the three states of knowledge that Jesus talks about here? First, you have the world that doesn't know the Father. This includes those who don't know anything about him, but it also includes the Pharisees, who have a head knowledge of God, but not a saving trust, a, a personal relationship with him. Next, we have the knowledge Jesus has of the Father. This is an intimate knowledge. The Father and Son share the same essence and share equally in divine perfection. The third state of knowledge is of these that you have sent me. It's the knowledge that we have as believers. This third state of knowledge goes way beyond believing the facts of Jesus' life death, and resurrection. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. The knowledge Jesus is talking about here is the knowledge that comes through relationship with God. It comes through trusting the person of Christ in repentance and faith. Verse 26 starts out, I made known to them your name, as we know from the Old Testament, the revelation of God's name is the revelation of his character, the revealing of his attributes. God, God's name is glorious, and he wants us to make it known. In Deuteronomy, we're told that the tabernacle was where God put his name. As God's people moved towards the promised land, the tabernacle moved with them. 
So when the people saw the tabernacle, they knew that God was in their midst. At the incarnation, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. Jesus dwelt among his people during his earthly ministry. Here he replaces the tabernacle as the place where God puts his name. Now, in our text, he's about to return to the Father. He will replace his physical presence with a spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 continues, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here Jesus gives a precious promise to the church. It's a promise fulfilled through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is also the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where he promises to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And it's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, where he promises a new covenant, where he will put his law within us and write it on our hearts. And he will be our God, and we shall be his people. Jesus will continue to make known to us the name, the character, the attributes of God the Father. The purpose? Let's continue reading. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here Jesus brings it full circle. He wraps it up with the summary of our love rooted in the Trinity and of our unity with him. So many of the elements of the Puritans' prayers are found here in Jesus' prayer. They prayed the way our Lord prayed, as did the woman in Guatemala who prayed for our unity in Christ, had a passion for his glory and a longing for the eternal. But none of these prayers hold a candle to the prayer we find here in John 17. Christ's intercession for us began 2,000 years ago and continues to this day because he always lives to make intercession for us. We're overwhelmed at the intercessory work of our blessed Savior. Surely you have lavished the riches of your grace upon us. We pray that we would be one, even as you are one. May the world know that we are loved by you because of the love that we have for one another. Prepare our hearts for the table of our Lord. Thank you that great sin draws out great grace, even though our sin deserves infinite punishment, it is, as it is done against an infinite God. Thank you that there is mercy yet for us at the foot of the cross. Work in our hearts by your spirit that Christ may reign supreme in our hearts. Give us the faith that overcomes the world as we cling always to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite the band.